people don't realize that the AI sometimes don't have to be as good as a human to be beneficial. In many cases, it doesn't have to be. It just needs to be good enough. It doesn't even need to be as good as human, right? But if, if it could solve, if it could be like, I would say like 70% as good as a human. It could help you tremendously by making your work or your processes a lot more efficient. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Wu, Chief AI Strategist at Pros. Now, Michael is one of the first people I came across with Chief AI in anything related to their title. And with AI now firmly in the hands of the people, the explosion of chat GPT everywhere, I thought who could be a better person to share their experience of over 25 years in the field with us. Michael's background is broad and intriguing, starting off and studying and becoming a leading researcher at UC Berkeley before joining CROAS, one of the major platforms that started connect and map human connection across digital interactions. Today, Michael works at Pros, the CFO's best-kept secret, and a product that can accelerate customers' ability to achieve profitable growth by digital selling and e-commerce channels. They're pretty unique. You should check them out. Michael loves to apply current knowledge to human visual, neural, and cognitive processing to solve unexplored and challenging problems in the real world. It's a fascinating discussion from someone who really understands this field and has been helping others for many, many years. So becoming a chief AI strategist, how do you even start? Well, Michael's story, it's quite interesting, of following one network to another. All the way back in my education, I had a, a triple major graduate <laughs> degree in math, physics, and molecular biology. And that was a little bit kind of interesting, the way that you know, like, I intended to kind of be a physicist, and then I end up taking so much math that I might as well double major. And then I got really interested in a topic in, in physics is now what we call nonlinear dynamic. You know, so these are systems that are actually have some chaotic behavior that is very hard to predict. And the brain happened to be one of these systems that has exhibited some form of chaos. And I was fascinated by how the brain works and really wanted to understand it, but I find it very challenging to model it using just the tools in math and physics. Then I felt that, you know, I needed something extra, right? So I ended up like getting another major in molecular cell biology, neurobiology, and that's, you know, focusing on studying the brain, like a biologist would do. There was a lot of learning there, I would just say, you know, because in math and physics, everything was constructive from first principle. You know your axiom, and then you know your basic physics laws, and then you understand the world from bottom up. And then with the molecular biology and neurobiology is almost the complete opposite, because that was the biologist, you know, I mean, you can't understand how a human works by understanding how every atom, every molecule works. And you couldn't right, do how that. All the, then, the individual parts are constructed together, right? It's actually how the whole operates. Yeah, you, you kind of do it the other way around. You deconstruct. If you do it the 
trying to understand the human from first principle, right? It would just take you too long. <laughs> it just wouldn't work. It's impractical. The biologists do it the other way around, right? They basically say, oh, you know, a human has all this, you know, circulatory system, you know, uh, and have the respiratory system, digestive, they break them down, right? And the digestive system has the, the stomach, the intestine, and, and, and you break them down into, into smaller things. It's almost from where this, the heart science, the math and physics goes from bottom up, your construction, where the biologists do it from the top down, and you're trying to do this deconstruction to understand the system. So that was kind of a unlearning moment for me because I, I had to kind of throw away all this stuff, all my approach, all my kind of thinking. When I see a problem, I think now the way it benefited me today is that now when I see a problem, I kind of have this two-pronged approach. Actually, I go from bottom up and I also go from top down. You know, so this has actually happened when I move into the industry, you know, after I gained my PhD. I joined a social media company. This social media company, social media back then, you know, was a new thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, myself, yeah. yeah. It's really fascinating here for someone like yourself, right? To start down a very specific path, if you will, of study, very scientific, as you say, very focused, first principles and build up. And then sort of to be willing to go and spend a whole more amount of years looking a different approach of deconstructing from a more biological point of view rather than a physics point of view, if you will. Mm -hmm. That's a big commitment. How do you sort of make that bet even yourself? What was the prompt or the trigger that sort of said to you, wow, this is so important that I'm willing to invest years of my life to go down a pretty much opposite path from what I've been pursuing and Getting PhDs is no mean feat, right? Like we're talking years and, you know, I know you studied at UC Berkeley, do a lot of this work and beyond. So this is not like a, a walk in the park. So how do you make that decision? What was the inspiration that sort of gave you such conviction to go, I'm going to do this? Well, the conviction is just a strong desire to understand something. At the bottom of my heart, I think very, even right now in my current role, I still try to understand a lot of things. And fundamentally, I'm this, I would say. So I try to understand things using it just that, you know, with systems like the brain, you know, trying to understand it using math and physics is impractical. It was just not, I would say, like, I wouldn't say infeasible, you know, it may be possible, but it's just impractical. You could probably do it, but it'll probably take you too long. So I was just so fascinated by how the brain work that I just feel like, okay, maybe I could take another approach. Maybe I could just take a look at how the biologists do it. So they, they take this you know, completely different, opposite kind of approach, right? the deconstruction approach. And I think that, like I said, it, that significantly benefited me when I was in the industry after my PhD. When I look at some a social media, a social system, you can look at it, analyze it from bottom up and top down. And the thing is that like, either way, it's not perfect. For you to analyze, you know, a social system from bottom up, basically you look at the empirical data, right? What people, in those days, right? Let's, on a social media platform, people, what can people do? They could they could share, leave messages, reply, like things, or, or they could do a lot of things. 
So those are the data that you're working with, right? So you can look at the data and try to understand what people actually are, are doing and figure out some of the bigger things, what they want, what they intend to do, and, and what are they looking to get out. But you can also look at it from the other top-down approach, right? And then basically look at it from a sociology, social anthropology or behavior economic perspective and see how do these principles allow me to understand why people are doing what they're doing on these social media platforms. And when you actually are able to do it the bottom-up and the top-down approach, the interesting thing is that like, they meet, they actually do meet in the middle. And your kind of theory actually provides you a level of understanding where either approach would have taken you much longer. So that was the thing that was really beneficial. Tell me some of the like little practical examples then as you started to put this into practice. What were the things that surprised you when you're building these like sort of social graphs, if you will, of populations? One of the things that comes up around behavior design when people are building products software is sort of encoding a set of actions to try and drive a certain behavior, whether it's going to Amazon and making it easy to purchase an item you're looking for, or you obviously work in the airline industry now with a company called Pros, where you're modeling different ways about how to operationalize and run efficient aircrafts and so forth. Tell us a little bit around the social media idea, because I think most people, unless they've been living under a rock for the last 10 years, probably have some understanding of social media domain. Like, so in the early days, what were some of the behaviors that you were trying to understand? Or were there some things that really surprised you that you learned from designing, if you will, are looking for patterns that drove the behaviors you wanted, I suppose, of more people sharing, socializing, connecting with folks? What were some of the aha moments as you started digging in there? There were actually quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I try to understand is the propagation of influence. You know, so as people interact with each other, invariably people influence each other when they interact. Whether you like it or not, you know, these are things that people don't understood before. Right? Like, oh, I you can't influence me, right? Everybody gets influenced. Unless you cut off communication interaction with the rest of the world, you are influencing people all the time and you are being influenced by all the people around you all the time. So, but how does this influence propagate and how does it actually spread? So those are the, the kind of mechanism that I'm trying to kind of understand. The aha moment actually comes down to basically when I do take this top-down and bottom-up approach, the fact that they actually meet in the middle, just that there is a consistent truth, right? That the truth is out there and it's consistent. It actually doesn't matter if you go top down or bottom up, they will meet. <laughs> and then the theory of kind of sociology or, or behavior economic actually matches your data. And then that's when you say, wow, this is actually just fascinating. There was a lot of those. <laughs> what were some of the things you were trying to prove? I always remember this sort of mythical Facebook metric where they found that if you connected to like 10 people within the first seven days, or you'll probably correct me exactly what it was, but that's actually what made people sticky on the platform yeah. because it created enough connectivity, if you will, that the platform's value proposition sort of came to life. When you started building either social media platforms, what were some of the 
areas of influence that you started to recognize? Because today we talk about influencers and people go, oh, you're someone with like 20,000 followers and they're just posting photos of themselves uh, at a nice restaurant so they get their meal for free. It's a way of even monetizing influence. I think that's interesting to people. So what were some of the interesting sort of surprises that you found as you were trying to model this idea of what influence is? Yeah, I basically identified the factor. There's actually six different factors that's needed for influence to propagate. I kind of don't even remember them, all of them now. <laughs> it's been so yeah. long. So one of the things that, that we, we found, and we were able to kind of use that to essentially to help us identify influencers before they actually become influencers. Because everybody starts out with zero. When you go on the social media platform, right, you have to start with one message or one share, one yeah. photo or something one like that. One, one friend or something like that. But your friends might be already on there, but you always start with some very low number of connection content that you produce. But then they grow. They grow and they grow very quickly. And the way that they actually, the pattern that, that, that it grows actually allows you to identify the certain behavioral profiles, you know, like certain, you know, how do you share, how frequently do you share, and who do you share with, and the timeliness and all that stuff. People respond, right? Do you respond like within five minutes or within a day or, or a week, right? So all these behavioral profiles provide telltale signs of influencer in the making. Do you have what it takes to be an influencer? And we actually were able to use those factors the six factors to identify influencers. We call them super users back then, before the influencer was even a, a thing. And so we can identify them and then basically encourage you know, brands to cultivate these people because they could potentially be an advocate of the yeah, brand. Yeah, huge assets for their business, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So as you, you roll forward from there, right? You started off in, as you say, like working in, and this, these social media platforms initially, but your role is kind of involved in, again, like as a chief AI strategist, which is, again, I don't think I've heard many people even call that within companies at the moment. Now you're working in pros, which is a fascinating business, even within itself. I think you describe yourselves as CFO's best kept secret to profitable growth. So can you share a little bit about what pros is? Because it's a publicly listed company that is a huge secret in a way. And tell us a little bit about what you've been doing there over the last few years. Well, it's a secret, so I not so <laughs> much about it. <laughs> so pros is actually literally somebody's best kept secret because even some of our customers are not willing to share the fact that they're using us to help them monetize. The simplest way to, to look at pros, what we do is that like we help company monetize more efficiently and more effectively through essentially two sets of tools. One is pricing tool and the other set is sales efficacy tool. So it turns out that pricing actually has the most dramatic impact on monetization. And people have can demonstrate that in the late. In fact, if you could change anything in your company, 1% change in anything. Like say 1% change in price versus 1% changes in anything else. The 1% change in price has more dramatic impact on monetization than 
anything else. But you could change 1% increase in headcount, 1% increase in efficiency, 1% reduction of cost, 1% change, 1% change of price. It doesn't say that you have to be in which direction because sometimes you know lowering the price may be a good thing. Sometimes increasing the price may be a good thing, right? So if you change 1% of the price in the more optimal direction, right, is has more impact. Actually, you know, 1% change in pretty much anything else you can do in business. So in fact, actually, you know, people have demonstrated that 1% change in price can actually lead to as much as 11% margin improvement, so which is actually very, very significant. So pricing is obviously a lever that we help company set this lever, pull this lever to help them monetize more efficiently. And then the other set of tools I would say that we provide through our software as a service is sales efficacy. Everybody knows that if you have a more effective and efficient sales team, you're going to monetize better, right? So that's, I don't need to explain that. So that's kind of what pros do. Where a lot of my work fits in is in essentially coming down to, I would say, demand forecasting. Because with pricing, from your Econ 101, you probably know that there's this notion of equilibrium price. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, well, no, just for the listeners, just share a little bit about what this is. Sure. It, for me, this is fascinating as you start to share, like, what influences your business? A 1% movement of price in the right direction can have a huge force multiplier. But people wonder, which way should I go? And I, the inclination yep. is always to go up, I'm sure, right? And yep. It's not always optimal to go up, right? Because if you go up, you say your price high, you may lose customer, right? So it's that balance, right? You have to find the right balance. So I, I think from your Econ 101, we know that the equilibrium price is the price that optimizes your revenue. This equilibrium happens when your supply matches your demand. This is when you have a supply curve and a demand curve, and then, then when they cross each other, that's when you get that optimal equilibrium. So most business, say an airline, for example, they have a pretty good idea on the supply side. They know how many planes they have, they know how many seats on each plane, right? So at any given time, they know how many seats has been sold, so they know how much remaining seats there is, right? So they know the supply, at least for themselves. They should have perfect knowledge of how much supply of seat they have. For their competitor, they probably have some pretty good idea too. They know how many planes they have. If their competitor fly the same origin and destination, the same route or the same market, serve a similar market, they could probably make a pretty good guess of what their supply is. The challenge comes down to the demand. How do you know demand is. The demand is actually heavily influenced by a lot of factors. And even when with weather or some events happening, that's where a lot of my work comes in is to how do you forecast demand accurately in the future? With airlines, it's especially a challenging thing to do because with airline, you could buy a, a plane ticket a year in advance. So imagine this, right? For the airline to sell you a ticket to travel a year from now, that means they have to know what the demand and their supply is a year from now to find that optimal kind of balance, that the optimal equilibrium. So that's a very challenging problem from both mathematics, also predictive science and everything. So that's where a lot of my work and my, my team's work has been focusing on. This is mainly 
how do we design algorithms or use data sources to forecast demand accurately far into the future? So it's a fascinating discipline to reside within. Again, this is for me like the interesting capabilities, if you will, that AI offers people like yourself trying to solve that problem. Because I think for many listeners, when they hear AI, it almost comes across as this like magic wand. It's like, oh, I'm trying to solve demand for the airlines. And then I'm just going to make AI do it and ta-da, or write an algorithm, ta-da. And a lot of that is not as easy, should we describe it as that, okay? Like these are hard, as yeah. hard a problems as humans try to face and solve. So what are some of the things you think we need to unlearn for people who are not in the domain as you are, right? This notion of just like throwing data at a mythical algorithm and then the magic answer of 42 appearing every time, like help us understand what are some of the things we probably need to unlearn about solving these problems and actually what is involved in creating artificial intelligence capability, if you will, to look at difficult problems and try and give you more confidence that the probabilities you're thinking about are actually in your favor. For the industry, I would say that there will need to be a lot more learning in the use case side. For the science, it's actually easier because we have the data, we look at the data, we use the data to train the model, right? And if the model comes up something unexpected, right? Scientists are generally very data-driven. They look at the data, data says, no, this way is wrong, then it's wrong, right? And you change your hypothesis, you know, this, you do it another way. But I think for business, that's often very hard to stomach. Say in another scenario, say not in the airline, so we help serve a lot of industries beyond airline. Because yeah. every company needs to sell something, right? Or whether it's a product or a service, uh, when they sell something, they need a price. And to set that price optimally is what we do. So let's say if you are in a B2B situation, right, where price are kind of negotiated, they don't have a fixed price. And very often it is the case that the salesperson who have a lot of experience, that, oh, with this customer, I know he could pay this for this product. He, and I have a good relationship with him. He's, he's going to buy everything. So they trust their intuition. They believe in, in their relationship that they build. But the thing with these algorithms is that sometimes they may come up with answers that are a little bit surprising. You may think that uh, for this customer, I should sell them for whatever product that he's buying, $100, right? And then the algorithm will tell you that, no, you should, tell them you should sell them $150. And then you say, whoa, wait a minute. That's not... <laughs> I don't think I could accept that. You know, that's our 50% more, right? I mean, that's right. 50% more, right? I mean, it's a, am I going to lose this customer? Or is he going to hate me and, and leave and go to another vendor to buy this product? So this is something that we have to learn to unlearn, to kind of say like this, that while the algorithm probably look at a lot more data, a lot more different data sources. I mean, maybe normally you probably should have sold them $100. But at this time, at this particular context, at this moment, you should sell them 150 because, for example, maybe the supply chain is broken, so shipping costs a lot more, so it's much harder for him to get it. He could try to get it somewhere else. He wouldn't be able to get it, so he would come back to you <laughs> and take your offer for 150 So all that stuff, you know, is things that 
you probably wouldn't have considered because if you look at things as general rather than a very, very specific thing. Another example that I like to often give is that this is not even like AI. This is just prescriptive analytics. Everybody have probably had used a, a GPS navigation system. Always, yeah. Yeah, so in the early days of these navigation system, they would just optimize the shortest route. They were optimized to give you, if you key in the uh, origin and the destination, they will give you a route that's the shortest. And every time they will give you the same route because the distance between, unless new roads and you know are being built, the distance is not going to change very much, right? But nowadays things have changed. You know they're optimizing for travel time. Now the travel time actually now depends on a lot more things, right? It depends on the traffic patterns, right? I mean, and it depends on the weather. If you know, if it's severely flooded some area, then maybe that will slow you down, right, or, or something like that, right? So they may actually look at the real-time data of the real traffic, real-time traffic pattern, real-time weather condition, and provide you a route that you don't expect. If you want to go from your home to your work, normally I always take this route, and this is the fastest route I know. I would say that, yeah, 90% of the time, maybe, but maybe today there is an accident on that, a huge accident on that road, and because of a storm last night and it was flooded, there was an accident there. If you go that way, you're going to get stuck in traffic, right? You may not know that. And then the GPS is routing you somewhere else, and you have to essentially learn to kind of trust the GPS. And I think that involves some unlearning too, because people probably know the app Waze, right? Waze? Yeah, yeah. I think that was one of those real tipping points where people started to see the power, really powerful technology systems, but also driven from the crowd, where like individual people become sensors. Mm -hmm. And all of that data creates like a data layer or a map, if you will. And suddenly then I know... I'm able to get somewhere on time that I never could have imagined before with accuracy and predictability, right? Which was a game changer. Yep. And the thing about Waze is that like early, when you use Waze for the first time, and you probably just wonder like, why would it recommend me to go on this this little alley that, that I never would bother to go that, that way? They will route you to this really strange kind of, they don't take you on the most obvious way. But if you actually take those routes, you get there faster. Every time you, you don't follow the robot's instructions, it always takes longer, right? On. It takes longer, right? And pretty soon you learn to trust it. Right? I think that's the thing that the industry needs to do to take advantage of these type of system is that you need to unlearn your past intuition and what you learned before and learn to trust this new AI tool, whatever tool it may be, you know, the decision that it's making for you is actually based on a lot more data than you could consume or you could ever consume. <laughs> and so you probably should take its recommendation a little more seriously. It's so funny when you sort of share something like that, right? Because it's one of the behaviors, the human behaviors I've seen and I had to unlearn myself. It's like when, if I know a route between, I don't know, say it's the going, driving to work route or it's somewhere that I vaguely know and I'm going home and a machine tells me, no, the better way to go is this other way that I, all of my intuition, every part of my body goes, no, 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 that's never going to work. And yet we sort of fight the advice, if you will, which is really interesting 
how do we build the trust in the system to follow it in a way? And I think that's a really, again, like there's, I think it's always very interesting with these technologies as they become more and more advanced to the point where it's a spectrum almost like at one end, you're like, oh, I just, I don't even question the answer. I will just follow the recommendation versus no, that can't, that's, that can't, that's totally wrong. I know better as one individual versus this power of the crowd insight and predictability number crunching that goes with it, right? How do you help people? Because I think we're going to see more and more of that permeate our daily life. When we were starting the show, we were talking about this idea that GP3 or these chat tools now are starting to literally create better blogs than humans can write with only a very small amount of input, maybe four or five words that says, I want to write a blog about international travel. And then suddenly you'll have this amazing sort of perfectly crafted SEO optimized blog that's 750 words that you're like, wow, I I couldn't have even written this if I tried. And I hear writers keep telling me that it's not real writing. And yet I hear folks who would love to write but can't produce content at a high velocity going, oh my God, this thing is just changing my life. I think there's so many very practical examples now that are starting to come into people's lives from ways, as you were describing, right through to these content creation algorithms that have way better grammar than me, for sure, and no typos, which is always a bonus. What are some of the things you start to get excited about as you look forward to what's ahead and how these technologies are really becoming part of our daily lives now? The promise of AI was probably quite mythical to many people, but the practical application now is just, it's everywhere. And some we're aware of, some we're not. Yeah, I think it's already very pervasive in our life. I mean, everybody have a cell phone now. It's full of AI in there. You know, how it optimizes your battery usage and all this stuff. It predicts when you are going to use the, the phone and uses data on your location to and you had light sensor to sense the environment to set your screen brightness and so all these are I would say in some form you know, some AI is actually doing its work on the background to make the phone work better for you to adapt to your usage pattern your behavior and to optimize the experience for you using the phone I think what's exciting is that like you know in the future even I would say business would be able to start doing that right now. As an individual, as a user, we already use AI, I would say, a lot today. <laughs> Whether we, we are aware of it or not aware of it, you know, we are actually using AI pretty much every day in our life, just by virtue of using a phone, <laughs> your cell phone, your smartphone. And I think that in the future, it's a lot more business is gonna actually start to leverage these AI tools to help them for example, you say optimize SEO, marketing, targeting, or, or, or even, for example, <laughs> what we do, setting the optimal price and, and all that, right? And that's going to be automatic. And those who are not embracing that, right, it's going to be left behind. Because if you don't have this AI system, right, what are you going to do? I mean, you probably have a human and they're going to do this, the same type of job but they're going to do it a lot slower and they're going to not be able to analyze as much data as AI could have, right? So it's going to be less accurate. One way or the other, you are putting the economics 
will apply, will essentially, you know, create more pressure for you to adopt this type of technology. Otherwise, you just get outcompeted, you know, basically. I think. It's so true. But the writing example is very close to me. I am dyslexic. I struggle with like writing a blog post. People often think that I just sit here and churn them out in 20 minutes, but it actually takes me the best part of a day because it's, it's hard for me to sit down and think through all these tools or that how I want to communicate it. But what I've actually been blown away by is using some of these tools, even just to generate like an outline for me about what a thoughtful piece looks like. It suddenly gives me like five or six section headings. So then all I have to write is like one or two little paragraphs under each section. And suddenly I have a a really good blog that it's giving me this huge sort of augmentation, if you will, to get me to a place where I can really just focus on smaller bits that I can do really well, but the whole is brought together. And that's probably one of the biggest insights for me is that's where I feel it's human and machine and getting the best of rather than me just pressing, write a blog about cooking your favorite meal, generate blog, like it's going to do that similarly for most people, right? All that content will sound the, the same and less unique. But if I get the aid of actually a good structure to tell that story, like, why mm-hmm. would you want to cook your favorite meal? What's some of the things to do? What are some of the things not to do? What's your secret sauce for how you make it special? And a conclusion, suddenly I have that structure and I'm like, oh, great. I just write a little bit of each and then I'm producing high quality content more efficiently, higher effectiveness. That's the kind of stuff I think that has really stood out to me probably as I'm starting to experiment in this world is understanding what these capabilities offer. And granted, that's only at a micro scale for me. But when you think about what you're doing at pros, you're applying that capability to massive industries where price discovery and modeling demand, like as you say, the airline industry, a 1% price shift in tickets is like multiple, multiple millions of dollars, where it's very fascinating just to think about, you know, how someone like yourself who's right in this is seeing these places start to emerge and what's working and not working, if you will, and what we all need to unlearn along the way. So in closing, then really for you, I'd love to know, like, what are you most excited about? For someone who's on the bleeding edge of this, I still feel like I'm a mighty like a little dinosaur, just transforming to my next iteration of myself to like be a better writer. What are some of the things coming down the pipe that you're very excited about or you're starting to see and, and is lighting you up? Certainly these large language model like GPT and also this, the variant that applies to image, right? The DALI that generates images based on textual prompts. Like I said, it's not really replacing human. I think a lot of people have this fear that it's, oh, what am I going to do if AI could do all that? But I think it's about doing things that are, I would say, complementing the human. I think DALI, you generate an image, you know, you could describe it. You know, want a picture, a scenery, I just, you could describe the scene using words, right? And they say, oh, I want the sun to be a little bit to the left. I want it to be a little bit dimmer. I want more clouds here. I want... So you could describe that and you actually paint yourself, but then you could see you are actually interacting with the system, providing it feedback so that it learns what you want to draw or you want it to paint. 
and what style do you want it to be in? And do you want it to be oil painting or cartoon or line drawing or something like that? So all that provides you a framework, a scaffold. So you don't have to start with a blank slate. That's where a lot of times people don't realize that the AI sometimes don't have to be as good as a human to be beneficial. In many cases, it doesn't have to be. It just needs to be good enough. It doesn't even need to be as good as it right? But if, if it could solve, it could be like, I would say like 70% as good as a human. It could help you tremendously by making your work or your processing a lot more efficient. The efficiency gain is actually the biggest benefit that AI can provide. Having the accuracy is great. You know, if you could be as good as a human at doing something, great. But even if it's not as good as a human, you could business can actually still leverage it and still get a lot of, I would say, economic benefits out of it. And largely comes from efficiency gain. It's funny. One of the things we often say in Nobody Studios is this idea of if you can get your first version of something to like 70%, it's a huge lift to engage another person for feedback in. So if you and I are building a product and we have a conversation. I go off and build a business model and come back and it's sort of like 75% of the way towards an accurate answer. That's such a great point to have another feedback interaction and improve things. And if we take that sort of weak analogy, if you will, and when I'm thinking about ideas that I'm trying to create, whether it's a blog post, whether it's a piece of art, whether it's actually really complicated pricing models, having a support that can help me get to like a 75% iteration of it in moments. That is for me, like the magic, as you say, and then you're optimizing from 75 to 85 to, will you ever get to a hundred? Like, does it even matter? But it's this sort of augmentation, if you will, of the creativity still that you're trying to create as an individual, but the processing power to make those cycle times of feedback faster, higher fidelity, and more effective. And that's a really great way to think about it. And what these capabilities sort of offer us is fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And the efficiency gain, it's a huge, I would say, opportunity. There's a missed opportunity if company have this misconception that, oh, why do I have to pay for an AI if it's not even as good as my, my human employees, right? I mean, while your human employee can't work 24 hours, <laughs> Your AI is not as good, but then you can work 24 hours, right? You make the AI do what it can do, right? It can solve all the problems. You, you can solve some of the simple, you know, like you say, solve 70% of the problem. You could enable your human employees to focus their effort on solving the 30% that's really, really difficult. That's a huge gain and it's already there. Brilliant. Well, listen, Michael, it's been fascinating to talk to you, learn about your own personal story from physics and mathematicians to biology, back to building social networks and amazing platforms and technologies that are shaping the future. Thank you so much for sharing about your own story and some of the things we need to unlearn about this whole space. I'm excited to follow you and the work you can continue to do. And you're great at sharing videos and blogs and educating everybody on what this technology is about. So I highly encourage everyone to check you out, follow you on LinkedIn. And thanks again for being on the show. Thank you.